Well, good morning. We made it to the end of the book of Acts. Uh, it has been such a blast to preach through this book and uh, to read and study it. I hope that you have profited from the sermon series as much as I have enjoyed preaching it. We are in Acts 28. If you weren't here last week, Paul and a ship full of men are on their way to Rome when they are shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Amazingly, all 267 men survive. They, they swim to shore. And in Acts 28, the, the survivors are, you know, there they are on the shore, safe, but soaked to the bone, it's still raining, it's cold, they're freezing. And in a great act of kindness, the natives of the land come to the survivors and they set up bonfires on the beach to help them, you know, dry off and get warm. And sometime during this, all of a sudden, Paul, uh, he's reaching down to pick up w- wood to put into the fire. And lo and behold, a snake bites him. <laughs> a poisonous serpent, you know, bites him. And the, um, the natives see this and they just assume, like, this guy must be the most wicked man on the history, uh, in the, uh, on the planet. I mean, here it is, he just survived a shipwreck and now he's being bitten by a viper. I mean, to be struck down by the goddess Justice on the land, um, you know, proves what a, what a, a rogue he must be. But Paul, um, and I, I think something metaphorical is going on here, he takes the snake, he, he throws it onto the ground, you know, um, like Paul the snake handler, and this poison you know, goes into his body, but he doesn't become sick. It's almost as if the poison becomes an anti-venom. And over the course of the next several days, he goes around the island of Malta healing people. And in many ways, that is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. When Christ, when he's on the cross, he's taking the very worst of the world, right? He's, the serpent is striking him. I mean, all of the powers of Hell and evil are aligned against him. He takes all the poison inside of him and out flows, you know, this this river of healing to the world. Well, remember how the whole book of Acts has been building based on chapter 1, verse 8. It says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And today we finally come to the uttermost parts of the earth, to Rome. And we read, beginning in uh, verse, or whatever the verse is. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to uh, Puteoli. There, we found brothers, brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, 
Oh, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your forefathers through Isaiah the prophet. Now here he is quoting from Isaiah 6, the passage that we had as our call to confession. Um, Isaiah was sent, was commissioned by God to go to the people. And it was an unsuccessful um, preaching ministry that he endured. And then Jesus quotes this like three times in the Gospels. But go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes And hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a strange ending to Acts. Uh, You know, the last third of the book has been all about Paul's journey to Rome and his opportunity to stand before Caesar and to have his case, you know, tried before the Caesar. No no sooner does he arrive in Rome than um, (laughs) Luke proceeds to, like, tell us nothing about it. Did he ever get to appear before the emperor Nero? Did he get his day in court? Did he win his case? Was he released? Did he plant more churches? Question after question goes unanswered. At the ending of of Acts, this abrupt and, if we're being honest, somewhat dissatisfying ending. And and even more so, uh, there's no uh, no discussion about his, his interaction with the Christians in Rome. I mean, they greet him, but that's it. And he had already written the letter to the Romans, to the church at Rome. I mean, arguably the most important epistle in all of the New Testament. And yet we, Luke doesn't tell us anything about his interactions with the church at Rome. It's, it's like, okay, why would you conclude Acts in this way? Why is Paul's story left so open-ended and never completed? And so we're going to consider that. Uh, we're going to consider several of the perplexing questions that uh, are part of the conclusion of this book And what I'm going to argue by the end of the sermon is that this is actually the the perfect ending to the book of Acts. And if I can keep my composure, (laughs) the perfect last sermon for a pastor to preach to his congregation. So I'll do my best. (laughs) Let's start with uh, the first point, and that is the delay. The delay. For about 12 years, from 46 AD to 58 AD, the Apostle Paul was on a church planting tear. I mean, the man was planting tons of churches. He traveled thousands of miles throughout the Roman Empire, started 
you know, a bunch of churches, by, by, by far the most effective and successful missionary in the early church. But in AD 58, all of that changed when he was arrested. He spent two years in a prison cell in the city of Caesarea. Then he had his ill-fated voyage across the Mediterranean by ship that took six months. And once he gets to Rome, he's a prison again. Uh, well, he's under house arrest, which that was, you know, relatively good. He wasn't put into a dungeon. Um, he lived in a rented quarters, chained to a Roman soldier, and was able to have guests come and go whom he talked with. But if you total it up, it was almost about five years that Paul was um, put into in some form of captivity or another. And it's like, why? Why when he, when he was going, when things were going so well, Lord, why would you do this? And surely um, he must have been asking that question too. And we ask those kinds of questions about our own lives. I mean, many times, you know, everything just falls apart and the train goes off the tracks. We may be trying our best to follow Jesus and honor him with our lives. And yet uh, um, life has a way of just unraveling. Um, Why? Well, in the case of the Apostle Paul, we have the benefit of historical hindsight. <laughs> and here's what happened over the next two years in Rome. Uh, there was a church in Philippi. Philippi was located in, in ancient Greece. They heard that he was in prison, and, and a prisoner was responsible for taking care of his own, his own needs. So this church in Philippi sends by the hand of a man by the name of Epaphroditus food, money, provisions, for Paul to take care of him. Epaphroditus comes. Uh, He's a tremendous encouragement to Paul. He gets sick while he's in Rome. Um, Paul's worried that he may die. And once he recovers, Paul sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi, carrying a letter of thanks to the church of Philippi, which which we know to be the epistle to, um, to the Philippians. What else happened? Well, Prisoners who were under house arrest were given certain freedom of movement in the Roman Empire. So from time to time, we just assume that Paul was able to walk out into the marketplace in Rome. Um, He could go and shop. He would be chained to a Roman soldier while he was out there, but he was able to buy things and talk to people. And it's likely that in one of these expeditions, he meets a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus had uh, run away from his master who lived in Colossae. His master's name was Philemon. Uh, They strike up a relationship. Presumably, Onesimus comes to Paul's house. Uh, Paul disciples him. He's converted. He becomes a Christian. He discovers Jesus. Eventually, Paul realizes that he needs to send him back to his master. But he does so with a letter, a personalized letter, that says you should receive this guy not so much as a slave, but as as a brother. I mean, it's the closest you can get to an emancipation letter in the first century. And we call it the epistle to Philemon. In addition to this, he also sends back a letter to the church there in Colossae, explaining to them how they're to to combat the false teaching that is arising in the church, the epistle to the Colossians. And in addition to that, sometime during those two years, he sends out a circular letter that was supposed to be circulated among the churches of western Turkey, which we know to be the epistle to to the Ephesians. And so, you know, what is the point It's pretty obvious, isn't it? By virtue of being in chains, the man ended up reaching billions of Christians down through the centuries versus the the hundred or even thousand he might have if he was a free man. And it just goes to show you, and 
this, it shows up so many times in our own lives or in church history, um, how Jesus has an uncanny ability to get us where we need to be, <laughs> even, even in the most difficult circumstances. Amen? He does. Uh, and um, if you're a Christian for any length of time, you, you can testify to that fact. And at the end of the Joseph narrative, back in the book of Genesis, Joseph uttered those famous words that what, he said this to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he wasn't just doing bumper sticker Judaism at that time. It's not a trope that he was kind of pasting over his sorrows. It was undoubtedly something he had told himself 10,000 times before because it's true. Um, so many great ex- stories of this I could choose from church history. One of them is Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, w- one of the, considered one of the greatest American theologians of, uh, that we've, our country's ever produced. He taught at Princeton Seminary for some like 35 years. But in 1876, at the age of 25, he married Anne Kincaid, beautiful young lady. They took their honeymoon to Germany They're out for a walk one day, and all of a sudden, a thunderstorm comes in, Um, uh, unexpectedly so. His his, uh, bride gets struck by lightning, and she's paralyzed for the rest of his life on their honeymoon. And what ends up happening is for the next, like, 40 years, Warfield cares for her day after day. Because Warfield couldn't leave her for more than two hours at a time, Um, He would go, he would teach his classes at Princeton Seminary, he'd come back. He was a prolific writer. I mean, he, and 140 years later, I mean, there there aren't any other Princeton Seminarians that were still reading, except for B.B. Warfield 150 years ago. And his, his work on the emotional life of Jesus Christ is still one of the best things you can ever read on uh, Jesus' humanity. And um, I mean, it was tragic, it's horrible, right? But it's also beautiful because God knows what he's doing. Uh, A a far less significant story would be in 2001, and I haven't even told you this one, Shelton. Uh, We went to, we were in seminary, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and we went to CC's Pizza, which was a cheap pizza pizza joint there, and um, because we didn't have cable television. Like, we we barely had a television at all in 2001, but I knew that the Boise State, I knew that Fresno State was playing Boise State on ESPN that night, and I was uh, strongly rooting for Fresno State. Because my college roommate was from Fresno, and he was attending a PCA church in Fresno. I had, the pastor was going to retire there, and I had been in conversations with them about coming and succeeding him. I had taken a trip to Fresno. I bought my Fresno State Bulldog hat. The kids know that I still have that hat, you know, 24 years later, as tattered as it is. Um, and in 2001, all right, I have to tell another sports story, you know, uh, Fresno State was on top of the college football world. Uh, David Carr was their quarterback. They had, um, they, he was on the front page of Sports Illustrated after Fresno State had beat three ranked teams on the road. University of Colorado, University of Wisconsin. I can't remember the third, but I mean, they were just flying. Um, Fresno State was the, was the bomb. And I wanted to watch Fresno State just demolish a school that I never heard of before. <laughs> And those of you who know um, what happened, 
Boise State, you know, hung in, the, in the game till late, and they w- ended up, I think, winning it on, on the last play, uh, a goal line stand. And that was truly the game. It wasn't the Fiesta Bowl. That was the game that launched Boise State into prominence. At that same time, uh, just, you know, months b- before, this, the third pastor of this church had left. They went through three pastors in six years. He was gone. The church had gone through a church split. Um, like, it was, it was kind of a disaster, wasn't it? But there was a boy or a guy. I guess I wasn't a boy. There was a 20-year-old in Jackson, Mississippi, wanting to go to Fresno. And there was a church in Boise that was looking for him um, after a really tumultuous time. And, you know, I wasn't this church's savior. It just, I was the right man at the right time because Jesus has an uncanny ability of doing those things. That was a delay. You don't have to understand it or explain it. You just have to believe that God works for good, for the good of, um, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Hmm. Number two, from the delay, we go to the speech. You'll notice the major emphasis on Acts 28 is Paul's speech to his fellow Jews. And it's recorded, the, the last recorded words, I think, are in verse 20, 28 here. They seem kind of anticlimactic. I mean, Paul's last recorded words in Acts. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Um, it, it feels like Luke could have done a little better than that. The, his last parting, parting words. Why? Why, why? why does Paul end? Why does Luke end it this way? Well, you have to remember just how much Paul loved his people. Um, There's that place in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, verse 3, where Paul says, My heart for my people is so strong that if I could be cursed and cut off by God, that they might be blessed. If I could be thrown into the pits of hell, that they might be saved, I'd do it in an instant. That's how strongly he he felt that for his people. Um, I mean, I'm sure... It'd be hard for any one of us to say that about the citizens of Meridian, right? That we have that kind of burning love for his people. Um, so to understand his last speech, I want to give you just a really brief illustration. I want you to imagine a son who was born into a very rich English aristocratic family who grows up in an English castle, who um, is tall and handsome with very dark hair and very pale skin because he rarely gets outside to see the sunshine. His, uh, the Lord and Lady of the Manor have told him that respectable people should spend most of their time indoors, uh, reading books, uh, talking about important things with important people, and sipping scotch. But one bright, sunny summer morning, the temptation proves too great. He starts out on a long walk to explore parts of the estate which he hadn't seen in years. And he comes to the top of a hill and he looks down at, at a stream that is bisecting this beautiful English, green English valley. And he sees down there a group of squatters. These poor, uh, ragged, tattered people on his estate splashing around and playing in the stream below. I mean, they look like they're having the time of their lives. And at first, the son is filled with anger. How dare they venture onto my estate? But the longer he watches the revelry, the, the more his anger subsides and is replaced with a feeling of jealousy. Like, I, 
why don't I join them? I mean, what could be more, more natural? It's, it's my stream. It's my state. It's my place. And they're having so much fun. Uh, what could be more natural than to celebrate with them as well? And it, if you know what I'm talking about, I'm, I'm talking about Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in a nutshell. I mean, the whole, even though, even though he was the minister to the apostle to us non-Jewish people, it was always his heart to make, to stir up jealousy in his people's hearts. To, to see, like, look what these, these ragtag bunch of barbarians, look how much joy they are experiencing, Trinitarian joy in, in the Son of God. Um, his aim was to make them jealous of the new community that was centered around Jesus and the gospel. We talked about this before. If you've ever been to a Greek wedding, there's a very distinctive uh, type of dance they do at a Greek wedding. It involves not two partners, but three. Um, and they start out, I think, circling a little bit, but as the dance progresses, they begin to interweave one with the other, you know, in and out and back and forth. And uh, as the music gets uh, faster and louder, they start to move more quickly, and they, it becomes so intricate and, and so well-timed that the three blur into one, and there was a Greek word that they used to describe the dance, and it was the word perichoresis. And the early church fathers, when they saw this dance of perichoresis, they said, that is what the Trinity is like. And, um, and Jesus, he prays for perichoresis to involve us all. John 17, verse 21. I pray, Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That the Father, I mean, this is that mystery. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Spirit is interwoven in between the two. And the church, us, we are in them. And it seems to me, um, you know, what's going to take our people, the people of Meridian and Boise and Idaho and America, what, what is it going to take for them to be jealous? It's going to be um, more and more healthy Christian communities of perichoritic life and love and glory. Um, and I think Joe's right. I think that's you know, the, the way that that manifests itself is hospitality, being in each other's homes, um, interpenetrating each other's homes and lives and prayers and conversations and, and all of it. It's just going to take, it's going to take that from a, a whole lot of churches in order to make the world jealous. And that, that, friends, is our calling. I'll say this, that my time at All Saints, I mean, I've enjoyed preaching, yeah, but the, the best part of being a pastor is just getting to do the dance with you. It is. Um, it's, and particularly, um, getting to do it with you all these years. Um, it's, you too, Karen. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's been great. Yeah. And we'll go to point number three. <laughs> so what, what ended up happening to Paul? Um, 
Some have suggested that there was a two-year statute of limitations where uh, if the prosecution doesn't come and bring their case after two years, then the, court, the case will be dismissed. Um, uh, you know, it was a long way to travel from Jerusalem to Rome, and the prosecution was pretty bad. They had botched it a few times before. The Romans were actually quite harsh against anything that they considered to be a frivolous lawsuit. And so perhaps it was for that reason that they didn't come and show up. Um, if they made, you know, it was, if it, it was deemed to be frivolous accusations that they were making, but quite likely they never showed up and Paul never came to trial. Tradition holds that he was released. Then for two years, he traveled the the Mediterranean world. Some suggest that he made it all the way to Spain, which was his his, you know, life goal. That's what he said in his epistle to the Romans. I hope that you guys will send me off to Spain. And he went to Spain. I think he may then have later made it to Ephesus, but, and that's all speculation, but after two years, he was rearrested, and this time he was thrown into a dungeon. We read all about it in the epistle of Second Timothy. It's, it's rather bleak. Um, he's brought, most likely, before the emperor Nero then in AD 58, and, and Nero had him beheaded, and he dies a martyr for our faith. Why didn't Luke tell us any of this? Why is it recorded at the end of Acts? Well, presumably because it hadn't happened yet. He didn't know that it was going to happen. Luke ended writing his volume while Paul was still under house arrest, perhaps planning a future third volume. That would have been great to read. Uh, who knows? But I think there's a deeper reason, um, and perhaps you've already sensed it, uh, why Why Paul's story is never completed. I think the reason the Holy Spirit never tells us at the end of Acts what happened to Paul is because the story was never about Paul, was it? (laughs) It It's not the book of Paul. What did we say at the beginning of the sermon series? The book of Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach by his Spirit through his church. It's the continuing Acts of Jesus. The the book was never about Paul. It's all about the progress of the gospel. Um, And that is why if you had the Greek in front of you, you could see the very last Greek word of the book of Acts is none other than the word unhindered. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Um, It's like Jesus unstoppable. Amen. Uh, The gospel can't be stopped. So what matters is not whether Paul lives or he dies. What matters is the gospel can't be stopped. And on my last sermon, I calculated, I think I preached over 900 sermons over these 19 years. I mean, I can't believe I've said that many words to, to a few of you. Over 900 sermons, um, it's kind of ironic that so much of a pastor's life is spent researching and studying and then, and then preaching. I do want to say um, just how grateful I am to you as a church to uh, have so gr- graciously received the word that I have preached from you. you. You would think that I 
Pastors get a lot of um, criticism and hate mail, hate email, and oh, you got this wrong. And I'm sure I said so many things wrong. I've, I've asked the Lord to forgive me for all the dumb things that I've said preaching. But, but like you, this church has been so remarkably kind to me and gracious and just, and just receive the word from me with, with faith and hope and love. Um, like, what a blessing. I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I mean, I, I look at some of you and like, you've, you've heard me for 15 years. <laughs> and, and you've received it with, with such kindness. Thank you. Um, but what matters is not me. It, um, and what matters is not you. Because every one of us are going to be forgotten. We will. And very soon. You think about it. You, you and I know next to nothing about our great-great-grandparents, do we? Yeah, we wouldn't be here without them, and yet we know virtually nothing about them. I mean, you and I, I as the pastor, you in whatever circle of relationships you are, you are in, even in your own family, you're going to be forgotten very, very soon. Um, and guess what? That doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward. The gospel will go forward. Um, and uh, for us, it's the task to pass it on to our children and to pass it on to our neighbors, and to pass it on to our city, and to pass it on. Um, it's just asking him, Lord, what, what role do you want me to have in your mission to reach our city and the nations with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Like, ask him that. Pray that. What, pray it again. I'm sure you've prayed it before. Pray it again. Lord, what is my role? To t- it's incredible, frankly. It's incredible that we would get the the privilege of participating in the grand story of the unstoppable, unhindered gospel of Jesus Christ to go out to the world. Amen? That we would participate in that. Ask him again, like, what is your role? Or what do you have for me? Adoniram Judson was the first foreign missionary to set sail from American soil. He married his wife Anne on February the 12th, 1812. A week later... They set sail for India and eventually settled in, um, in Burma. Um, Adoniram did not return to the United States for 33 years. He and his family adopted local customs, learned the language, lived among the Burmese people. It took, it took him six years to have his first convert. <laughs> he was church planning for six years before somebody came to faith. But when he died in 1850, a dictionary had been completed. The scriptures had been translated. The church he started with one convert had grown to 7,000, and over 100 new indigenous pastors were ministering among the Burmese. And yet it came to a tremendous loss to himself and to his family. Anne died while he was there. Three of his kids, kid di- kids died. Um, we all die. But the gospel spreads. And now maybe... Maybe a few of us will be Adoniram Judsons. I certainly hope so. Um, but every one of us, friends, every one of us is living in Acts 29. Uh, I'm jealous that there was a church planning movement that actually took the name of that because the reason, uh, the primary reason the book of Acts ends so open-ended is uh, it's still being written. Like we are in Acts 29 right now and probably never, never more so in America than right now. The, the task for us is, is so great and the privilege is so high that we could participate in it. I mean, just think, think for a second. Like, 
what Christ means to you. Like what Christ has done for you. What his grace. How he's transformed your life. Like wouldn't you, don't you want everybody in this place, to, in this world to know it. In your own city to know it. Like that God's regard and his love for you and me. That it is all found in Christ. Like a, a love beyond description. A love beyond compare. Not based upon our performance. Not based on whether I have a good day or a bad day. Or whether I'm a faithful missionary or an unfaithful missionary. Like that his love for us in Christ. He loves us as much now as he will love us a billion years from now. It's the best. It's the gospel. Amen? It's the best. And um, that's what we have for the world. It's Acts 29 for the world. So as all saints moves forward, remember how much that God loves to bless people and churches that are generous with their time, their energy, and resources for the sake of the Great Commission um, at home and abroad. Uh, and I'll conclude with, I think it was the congregational meeting um, shortly after this, the third pastor left, where a Canadian um, minister came down, Bert Gibson. I don't know if it was the third. It was something like that, that he, he came down and they were trying to decide of All Saints, Valley West Presbyterian Church, uh, as it was named at the time, it, that it, if it should continue, and because uh, it's a pretty bad track record when you've gone through three ministers in six years. And uh, Bert Gibson's words to that church, it, it was just, you know, it's just, he said, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And I, I have every confidence that you will. Um, uh, come visit us in Phoenix often <laughs> and keep your eyes on Jesus. But I pray that the spirit of Jesus will fill this church and fill you and bless you with amazing fruitfulness over this next decade. I hope that you end up planting uh, uh, 10 more churches in this city. I hope that you end up raising up a dozen two dozen more pastors and missionaries from this church. I pray that you reach thousands of people in the Treasure Valley with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it can happen because Acts is ongoing. <laughs> the gospel can't be stopped. Jesus, Jesus is unstoppable and his kingdom is unhindered until the very end. Amen.